Welcome back, everyone, to the Why Marketing Podcast. I'm Rusty Pepper. Running Shotgun today is my co-host and marketing rock star, John Bailing. How's it going today, John? Very good. How are you doing today? I've got zero complaints. I Well, I think now with our current state of the world, I think this uh, whole work from home thing is getting more and more comfortable every day. So, <laughs> Although I, see, I feel I'm working more often now because, you know, 4.30, I'm having a cup of coffee and I'm answering emails, which I don't know if it's a good or bad thing. Yeah, not having to hop on a plane or traveling all over the world for meetings is nice. Uh, but, you know, the one thing I'm actually missing is getting dressed up for work, which is why I decided to put on a big boy shirt for you today. So, you did. I see that. A collar and everything. <laughs> I know. I think it's a good thing. But before I introduce our guest today, John, I want to ask you something. As a CMO and marketer, how would you rate your technical and IT skills? You know, I think there's a variety of different breeds of CEOs. Uh, you know, there's the analytical, there's the creative, and there's the strategic. And hopefully you've got all of them. Technically speaking, uh, the technology side is not uh, an expertise. And so that's why I rely on much smarter people <laughs> to surround myself with. <laughs> so you're not about to become a, a CTO anytime soon then? Not in my wildest dreams. That's that's the, that's where that word outsourcing comes into play. <laughs> or just hiring smart. Exactly, exactly. Take a Stephen Jobs approach and hire people that know can do a better job than you can. Well, I ask this because our guest today is also a very first for our show. He's our very first CMO and CTO, and he's also our very first guest from the oil and gas industry. So, without further ado. I'd like to go ahead and welcome today's guest, David Reed. Uh, he is the CMO and CTO of National Oil Well Varco. Welcome to the Wide Marketing Podcast, David. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, we're excited to speak with you. I think we both have a ton of questions that we want to ask you. But since it is a day of firsts, I wanted to try something a little bit new. And instead of doing our speed round questions, what we typically do at the end of the show, I want to do that at the beginning to help us kind of break the ice and get to know you a tad bit better. Yep. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's see. David, I will say that I have no idea what Rusty is going to ask. So I'm I'm getting it's just as on the spot for me as it is for you. Yeah, you're, you're giving me a game. I don't even know the rules. And uh, Well, there are none. That's, I think that's the beauty of there are none. none. There's none. <laughs> as long as it's just speed means fast, I'm okay. <laughs> well, we're going to go quick. So uh, our very first speed round question is, cannonball or swan dive? Cannonball. I, I would say cannonball too. I don't think there's anything graceful about my uh, diving board skills. <laughs> If you're going to be up there on a diving board, you want to throw out the biggest splash possible, right? Well, I, I, either that there is the combination of belly flop and cannonball. That, that could have been a... I was surprised we didn't have belly flop as an option, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's add that. Cannonball, swan dive, or belly flop? <laughs> belly flop. <laughs> I, I would agree. Belly flop. I think I think you get a, you get a higher score on the belly flop. Yeah. yeah, I'm down with belly flop too. So our next question, taco or a hamburger? Tackle. Interesting. Uh, you know what? I have to go back to my Midwestern roots of uh, kill it and grill it. So I, I go uh, I go hamburger. <laughs> All right. That's good. All right. Passenger or driver? Driver. Absolutely driver. I actually get I actually get nervous if somebody's an aggressive driver and I'm not I don't have my hands on the wheel. My, 
my whole set, I've got three siblings, but none of us likes to be in the car with the other driving ever. We're all drivers. It's it's a problem. Oh, yeah. You want your destiny in your own hands. Yeah, unless it's an automatic car, and I'm actually quite cool with that. But strangely, I've been enjoying that experience. Yeah. Maybe I'll get over it soon. <laughs> now, here's the last question. Work hard or play hard? Work hard. Oh, wow. I thought there was going to be a hyphen or combo. You know, I'm going to say, I'm going to say play hard. And, and, and probably the reason being is maybe when you go through all the years in the hamster wheel that we've all been through, I'm like, okay, not that I don't work hard. It has nothing to do with it. But at some point, there's the pinnacle of the career. And it's like, okay, let's have some fun. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the, the, there's a the little more play. Now, whether I practice that or not is neither here nor there. But <laughs> yeah. Well, either way, it will work because eventually, if you work hard enough, you'll get to play hard. Yeah, Phil- yeah hard. Philos- philosophically, yeah. right? I'm kind of work hard, rest hard. There we, there we <laughs> go. There we go. Uh, well, good job, guys. That was a lot of fun. So I appreciate you guys playing along. And I say we jump right into the show. So, David, if you don't mind, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. Um, Josh, I uh, I trained originally in architecture, worked in Scotland and California. My wife's from California. Um, so got got into that. Was I don't know if I wasn't good at it or, uh, you know, there was better things for me to do. But so I, I met someone. I grew up in an oil and gas town, was not enamored with it. When my time out from college, I'd worked in, in a major oil company briefly and thought, this is horrible. These people aren't nice. Um, so kind of didn't want to go back and this guy socially met me and offered me a job and I went there for a month and, uh, 30 years later, here I am, same company, highly unqualified working for the CEO. Um, most of my career was inventing. I mean, just finding businesses and new technologies and, and developing them. And, and I had a, an ability to look ahead of the business that was, pretty unique and do things and and battle through the early years of looking like you're really doing something stupid until it looks genius. So I've I've been pretty lucky in that space and uh, work with great teams. I've really, really been uh, into learning how to be really bad at some things and good at other things and filling those gaps with incredible people. So that's kind of been my journey. Well, I will say that of all the people we've interviewed right off the bat, you're the most brutally honest uh, person that we've, uh, that we we've spoken to. So I'm curious with, with the amount of time, because 30 years is, you know, especially in this day and age, a long, long time with an organization. And, and so on the technology side, where you started, how potentially antiquated things were to what was what were some kind of the evolutionary mile milestones that happened in the past thirty years on a technology standpoint in the in the industry? I, I always had the benefit of I mean, my wife and I dated up in Santa Cruz. Everyone was working in Silicon Valley, it was the eighties. And when I started, the company I joined was a Californian company, Southern Californian manufacturer. And they were they weren't a startup. They've been been there a long time, but they were really innovative. They changed their model and gone to some much higher risk innovation and um, made gigantic robots. I mean, even when I got there, you know, they had this 100-foot-tall robot that they made that was fascinating to me. It was kind of a concept. 
And um, I kind of ran with that. Within within a few years, I started leaning towards that technology. And they, they uh, I was out in the field measuring for one of the first systems. And I didn't like it, so I redesigned it and uh, found a way to make it. It was in Norway, and we, we manufactured in Orange, California. And I, uh, I found a way to do it locally, um, priced it, did all that work, bid it. And then I asked if it was okay for me to do that and got in trouble. But it got a lot of trouble and got brought to the top of the company. They pulled me over to California. And I started being the guy inventing those systems, which made me like the architect of, of modern drilling rigs. And it allowed the, the change of people physically handling pipe to move into just hands-free systems. So uh, over the years, that became the standard. And our company is highly acquisitive. So we buy about a company a month and have done since it began. So it went from a tiny company of 1,000 people to about 65,000 people. And uh, a lot of lot of acquisition. And so I got to be involved in that strategy and holistically looking at systems and uh, building that out, building out a, a large fleet of, of uh, systems, standardizing them so that we could get into software, started developing AI systems, started looking into, we drill miles into the earth and having computers down there and communicating, starting to drive the machinery based on what it was seeing in the earth. And so kind of closed loop automated control, got into that. And we just kept buying companies that could get us more and more of that technology and uh, once I understood the complexities of coming cloud systems and AI systems around 2000, I started to design machines and systems that could receive better and learn from each other better. And uh, and then we just started going out from there to the sides. We, we've moved into industrial. We do a lot of renewable type stuff now. Um, and so that's all that's all things I got to to do, automation, closed loop control, and then out towards the renewable stuff. So that's that's kind of been my journey. And it's hard to wrap up a lot of years. Yeah, it certainly is a lot of years. But uh, throughout that uh, your career journey, do you recall when you realized that you had this hidden marketer inside of you and, and when you decided to really make that a part of your career? I was always a natural marketer. I was always um, going in, and maybe it was architectural training, but going into environments and working out what really was needed and where the pain was and always assessing quickly. And so that was that was something that that helped. So I've often found as a CMO when I meet other CMOs that my job seems to be different, and that I usually CMOs are trying to communicate value or trying to understand the connection between you know the the buyer and and the seller. And for me, it's more I can actually drive the company to the answer, which so it was a slightly more powerful position after years of being in the company. Most CMOs I met were struggling with things that I didn't struggle with as much because um, I, I carried a lot of weight and credibility um, in the organization. So I was able to do more. And ultimately, my interest in technology led to them integrating the two roles. It's going to be my journey. Appreciate you sharing the, the journey because when you look at it from a marketer's perspective, it is a non-traditional journey that you've taken. However, I imagine it's really uh, suited you well especially for current marketing conditions because of your depth of experience over the past 30 years. So let's talk about current state of the oil and gas industry because it's no secret. It's taken it on the chin uh, as of late. So what have been some of the lessons learned from past dips and downturns that are allowing you to continue to innovate and to press forward given the current state of the industry? 
for us, it's and we're no different, I don't think, but we're riding on a commodity product, right? So it's um, it's going to cycle, and I've watched every business cycle. So th- this is the worst cycle we've ever seen in the history of, of oil and gas between the pandemic and then a bit of wrestling going on between our, what we were able to do in the U.S. We used to import about 80% of our oil from other parts of the world, which meant we had to be friends with people we didn't want to be friends with. Um, but we actually turned that and became an independent, you know, self-supplied country. And, and that really upset a lot of people. So our kind of low-cost, highly available oil caused that swing out of the Middle East and Russia. They, they needed to try and crush it. And so they've done a good job of trying to pull back because they, they hold most of the supply. So it's kind of a unique situation. Then you add COVID and, uh, and, it, and it crushes. For me, I've been used to the cycles. I, I you know, all these years that we, we go up and down and my, my work is pretty simple as a marketer because when you're down, you plan on going up and you're, when you're up, you plan on going down and it, it's, everyone acts like it's some genius thing you're doing, but it's really not that complicated. So the the down cycles are really good for you because you you can invest in technology you can be focused you're hungry and you go in the up cycle you volume produce you're you're gonna don't don't try and invent too much in that space and so I'm finding something for me I have to invent despite the company doing really well and having too much money you've got to find cash put it aside and still develop technology for a downturn that no one thinks is coming. Uh, just as much as I'm a crazy man working on things that are for an upturn that no one thinks is coming. Um, but I mean, we're going, we've gone through, I don't know, seven years of everyone stopping development. And these are multi-year developments that six to 10 years, you're going to have a huge oil problem very soon. Um, and that will be responded to the way it always is, where we'll have this massive swing up, just trying to, as everyone thinks, we're going to change the whole world suddenly to renewables believing in an energy transition that isn't physically possible. Californians have been living with this, right? Where they're shutting down nuclear power plants and trying to replace it with renewables and suddenly you don't have electricity. You know, they just haven't thought through, oh, we probably can't jump from one to another. It's not a complete transition. It's more of a, a slow transition over time. So so we're going to go through that. So it's that's kind of the cycle stuff. And I think cycles are normal for everybody. And I think you just... It's got to, that's where credibility will count because a lot of people I know, CMOs go into the job and they last two or three years on average. And that's because they want them to do magic. They don't do magic. They switch them out for someone else. Um, and it's, and you're so, it takes you three years to even understand your business. But you're meant to turn up and suddenly understand it. So I think everyone's at a disadvantage and that, that longevity really helps, particularly through cycles, have being trusted over time. Um, and that's that's kind of been a big advantage for me. So that that's one part of the question. The other is um, just uh, things that we're learning in a downturn. Uh, one of the best things that happened was COVID was great for me as a marketer, just because it allowed us to switch over to very low cost digital solutions. And um, And we did it fast. It was within a week. I think it was in Argentina when... When I landed, Argentina was locking you down for 10 days, and then um, Europe got cut cut out from travel to uh, back to the States. So I immediately got another plane, landed here, got to my house, sent everybody home, and said, we're all digital. All events, stop events, stop doing everything. We're, we're going digital. I want live shows. I want them by the end of the week. Let's start doing these different shows. We'll do them internally, and then we'll switch them over to live outside. And uh, 
absolutely shocked the rest of our industry because I planned on the whole year being locked down. And people thought I was crazy at the time. It was a, it was a chance, you know. But I, I really wanted to take advantage of a switch that was coming anyway. So the, the waste of investment in, in events and, in, you know, advertising that wasn't working and, you know, all those kind of things, we were able to just say, okay, just stop. So we did. And it's been very, very successful for us. We've built a lot of credibility and following. Our industry, when it cycles, it also gets rid of people who are near retirement ages. They, they just go, they decide to retire early or whatever. But what that does is it changes your whole demographic immediately. People who have power are not the people who had it last week. And so being ready for that and knowing that that switch is critical and you're able to do a lot more and do things differently fast. So that love for agility that I have was just perfect and my team was perfect for it. You touched on a couple of things from your your career, and I don't know if I'm going to open up a weird Pandora's box, but I've always that's been all fat. I got is weird Pandora's. That's box. perfect. Then this is a perfect question because I, I've always been fascinated by the oil and gas industry as it relates to automotive, and, and I'm getting to kind of a Tesla type question of as things mm. become more electric, and you've got cars mm. and motorcycles and. Yep. All of a sudden, which is a complete oxymoron, you know, GM bought the Hummer brand again, which used to suck gas like crazy, but it was a big, cool truck. And now they make an electric Hummer. So with all your acquisitions, what is just the company philosophy about either acquiring or, you know, saying, okay, yeah, we're oil and gas primarily, but we can't ignore this, what's going on in the world of electricity? It's a a definite outsider question. Yeah, it I mean, is. And it's, it's to do with our industry being so engineers, mass engineer designed. Everybody's an engineer. They just assume it's obvious, so they don't explain it to anybody. So everyone just thinks it's something that, that is just bad. But I mean, we, from a perspective of the world, our industry is all about improving the planet fundamentally. If you ask the guys who are going out the door and say, hey, you know, they, they really think the whole renewable thing is, is weird. Because like that's what they did in their life. They made us all have better lives. And pretty much at the core of the whole of civilization development is this low-cost, you know, highly available energy. So for that, that, that's still there. And there's still countries still trying to climb up that ladder who are, you know, not going to be buying Teslas or building wind farms at a, at a loss soon, you know. Oil and gas is a really uh, fruitful business for us financially. Um, so a lot of businesses look unattractive compared to oil and gas. So we, we have, pro- but we have products that do really well in oil and gas that we will sell to others. But generally, the margins are less in other markets. So, but sometimes that's for a good reason. Like we do, we do tons of, uh, we irrigate half of Australia's farms. Um, but the reason we do it is we originally put pumps in the ground to pull oil, but we started doing it off of solar. And we started doing it in third world countries just because it seemed like the right thing to do. And then eventually we realized, oh, Australia needs to develop farms, uh, Indonesia, those kind of areas. And so we started doing all of that. And so often we have byproducts that, that do well. Um, we're the world's largest composite and fiberglass company. Um, but we never say that. That just is who we are. And we've, we've slowly put together new materials. And that serves everywhere. I mean, we're building bridges. We're doing all sorts of other things. We constantly are making new solutions in, in those spaces. But but the best business for that has been oil and gas or shipping. Looking at the oil and gas industry, what's probably been proven to be the most effective way to reach the audience within your industry? 
we're using LinkedIn Live. So I mean, we we use everything else, but LinkedIn in our industry is is a very powerful tool. Um, and we pull one of our analysts on the industry and business um, to just start doing what's a giveaway show, right? There's no there's no objective to us other than to talk about where the market's going. But we study that for ourselves. But he's from the Middle East, so his name's. I think it was our first week when I said, "Have a show, call it Ask Assad." His name's Assad. Well, the fact it was called Assad got this massive following of people in the Middle East. They're like, wait a minute, a guy from the Middle East is telling us about the market. It was just, oh, they're in love with him. And and the, and people don't know how to reach the Middle East at all. They're very closed countries. And, you know, people, Western people try and connect with them, but they, they don't do so well. But but that that built, so you get this swell of following um, that it's a bit confusing for people. And then there's a different show that does sell specific technologies. But but if you get the following and you get that position, and it's a, remember, this is a swipe through. It's a new, it's a new market, new people leading, new people to influence. Um, the the crowd wants more digital connection. They want less of having people turn up in their office. And so people have worked out through the pandemic how efficient they can be, and there's everything has changed. Um, and so I think our allowing them to get out there and still be ugly. They laugh now at the original shows, but that's that same feeling of always getting better. Um, there's a genuine nature that we put into our marketing that that works for us being grounded and realistic and, and normal. And uh, it sells really well, particularly in our business. If, if you look at oil and gas, the type of people are like farming people. And uh, I think even farming people, their corporations forget how grounded they are. You know, and they get they get very very Wall Street, and it's the wrong way to talk to those people. Our our, our folks are the same, because the oil field built out on farms, so the culture is farming type. So it's very straightforward, very you know. So the more genuine you can be, uh, they like the flashy stuff, but but it's not necessary. So as you as we've built, um, we've really just honed our capability, and so we'll we'll do different things. We've just we've just grown in that space a lot more, and and grown with our. Uh, with our market, and I, I don't think it's going backwards. I think people are are moving to new levels of efficiency and forgetting all the buzzwords. I mean, if there's, if there's anything you could help me stop, it's the amount of people trying to sell me the exact same thing. You know, it's just so right. many people buzzwording me to death on emails and messages. But but and most of it's just not understanding. They're not they're not close to the you know what is really valuable as opposed to what is the story of what is valuable right so i mean we we have a really nice connection to each of the businesses where the day we're doing something that isn't valuable it's over we're not doing it anymore because they'll there's a very immediate connection into the each business unit and so um i have, i have what 18 presidents that i have to go visit regularly which um, I'll sit with them and I'm listening for, you know, how how are we serving you? Is it working? Is it not? What will we change? And uh, we get very, there's only been one who said, oh, well, I can't wait for the market to get better. So you can serve us better or we can have our own marketing department. And that, that blew my brain. I'm, I've never hear that. I said, honestly, you're the first president to say that. And I'll be fixing that. You're going to say, I never want to go back to the way it was. And uh, and we have we started fixing that, but but for for my team, I mean, we are doing much better work with much less people, and most people don't understand that that it's healthy to be small and to to learn not to, you know, be overweight in your work where you, where people aren't efficient and aren't doing, 
you know, the best work. So I, I think we always learn that when you go through a down cycle is you can do better work with less people. You know, I, I've listening to you, uh, my first take is your overall leadership ability as, as being very positive. So I'm curious, and when you started out into this business, you brought new ideas and new thinking, you rolled the dice, obviously spent some money in technology and you kept your job because it was very successful and probably very innovative. Do you look at yourself in your C-level position more as a leader, a strategist, or are you still throughout those creative new ideas or do you let your team adopt that? Um, it's a bit of all of that, which I guess is, um, cause this, as a strategist, I'm very quiet on purpose. Um, so I do a lot of strategy work with, when you have a large company, you have to go find people who are actually strategic as opposed to every leader who thinks they are strategic, generally are not. Um, I, and, um, so I, I, I've done that with what I call fight clubs which I'm sure you've seen the movie and the first rule of Fight Club is there is no Fight Club. So the people, the things that build our company, you can't find a person um, from a Fight Club environment who tells you they were part of it, but they were part of it. Um, the people who own it, I have a patent with a guy who remembers the day we invented something, but five years before a Fight Club came up with that idea. Um, but I didn't tell him at the time, oh no, you know, it's okay. Let's have a patent, cool. But, but for the people who are really strategic, um, they don't care about getting the recognition. They just want it to happen. And there's a there's a thrill that it happens. Um, and so a lot of our big stuff has happened through that uh, environment, which has been fun. Um, you just let open brainstorming. But but the, the process really is that I tell people, hey, come to this, this meeting. It started actually going downtown in Houston saying, okay, T-shirt and jeans on a Friday. We're going to a coffee shop all afternoon. No agenda, which, you know. There probably was one, but I didn't share it. But we'd walk people through ideas and discussions. And what that would do is allow me to think differently for the company. And it had a freedom to it. And uh, that was, that's been a good method of allowing the strategic to happen. But then I have to seed it after that. So that we'll, we may do some business studies. It took a while till the leadership knew that I was doing that. But now they'll use the language. My, my boss will say, hey, we need a fight club on this subject and I'm like, okay, cool. And um, so we have that, that's been, that's been a way. So for me, it's, it's having that happen, but it's not like I need to be, have my head in that space all day long. Um, so the same with innovation. Um, I was machine design and that stuff I liked a lot, but I knew it was a trap. I'm way too ADD to, to stay in that, in that space. And, and sometimes the business needs you to stop inventing. Um, just for the health of the business that needs to be allowed to to standardize and, and drive. And so with all the different companies, I can put my inventing brain on when I need to. And, and that's really how it plays out. People will call me for a specific thing and I'll go do it. I have structured strategists who are not a large group, just it's been two, now one, who, who just spend time looking at, at markets or helping the small businesses think they're like a little McKinsey inside and they'll go and help you to understand, you know, where your product should be going. And so they'll go, they'll go do work with that. And then we'll work with the, my boss on where the general market is. So we'll sometimes put that together for, for different takes. So, yeah, it's all, it's a bit of all of it. And then I do a lot of, I'm kind of the public speaker for the company and have been for years, years back, I realized it was something I'd like to do. 
And so I speak at conferences. Um, I'm quite happy to do that, to do leadership stuff, internal, external. Uh, we moved to video. Once we got to a certain size, we moved to video to build. We were actually running around the world, all the leadership, um, to make sure people saw us. But we were in 77 countries, so that was pretty exhausting. And um, we realized you're starting to lose the culture, you know, that people people aren't catching it as much. And so video was another way to do that. So it was really helpful for conveying emotion, feeling, you know, culture. I think I think we've been very successful. I mean, this the guy who did it was actually an engineer working on a product, but he did a, a video job, and I saw it, and I was like, you know, this is what you actually are, which, which is the language we kind of live in. Is most people study the wrong thing, they're doing the wrong thing. So if you can find the thing where their superpower is, you just make them happy for the rest of their life. And and it's not just that they're good at something; it's where your superpower is always something other people can't reach or do. And everyone has them. Sometimes they're not in your company and you got to let them go, you know. So, David, what would you say your superpower is? I, it changed as I've evolved and learned what it really is. Because if I think through, it, it really is on the people side. It's really on what I, because it's leading people to lead people. Because I spent maybe eight years doing classes for middle management on leadership. And I think that, I think building and developing leaders and inspiring people, that's that's probably where, where my strength is. And that's that's where my best work happens, when I'm doing less work. And you know your superpower because it doesn't tire you at all. I would absolutely agree. Just talking to you, uh, that is definitely your superpower. You don't have... We all go through our marketing careers and you learn and you've got creativity and strategy and, and eventually you have a team below you. And you hire that team to be creative. You hire that team to be strategic, and but they they want that leadership ability, and it's a testament to your work and in your style because our world has a lot of bad leaders, and we've all we've all been there at some point. So it's, we've it's, all it's, been that bad leader for sure. So. Yeah, yeah. So kudos. Well, I think this might be a good spot for us to wrap it up and put a bow on this episode. Uh, unless John, is there anything else you want to ask, David? No, fantastic. Great chat, chatting with you. Appreciate yeah, it. So Enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to the Why Marketing Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Until the next time. <laughs>